0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at iaslc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. This episode is part of our series discussing new FDA approvals in lung cancer. Today, we'll discuss the Empower Lung 3 Regimen, which combines the PD-1 inhibitor Semiplomab with first-line platinum-doublet chemotherapy in patients with advanced non-small-cell lung cancer. This regimen was approved by the US FDA on November 8, 2022. To discuss it, I am joined by two lung cancer experts to help place this approval in context. Our first guest is Dr. Jordi Ramon, a thoracic medical oncologist with the esteemed Thoracic Unit at gustave Roussy in Paris and the Secretary of the Lung Cancer Group of EORTC. Jordi, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Stephen, for the kind invitation. It's an honor.
0: We're also joined by Dr. Isabel Prischigl, a thoracic medical oncologist and assistant attending with Memorial Sloan Kettering. She's also the chair of the Education and Engagement Committee of LCRF, the Lung Cancer Research Foundation. Is, thank you for coming on.
2: Stephen, thank you so much for inviting me. Very excited to learn from both you and Jordi today.
0: Now I'm glad to have you both on. We're we're going to discuss the approval of Simiplumab with first-line chemotherapy for non-small cell lung cancer. As we know, Simiplumab is an anti-PD-1 antibody that was initially approved in the U.S. for the treatment of skin cancers, advanced basal cell carcinoma, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. And as of February 2021, Simiplumab monotherapy is approved as first-line treatment for advanced non-small cell lung cancer with high PD-L1 expression. Now, chemoimmunotherapy combinations are not new in non-small cell lung cancer. In fact, in the US, we have several approved regimens. Let's learn a little about this particular regimen. Is can you tell us about the design of Empower Lung 3? And I want to mention uh, that it's, it's different from Empower with an I. Those are the atezolizumab studies. This is Empower Lung 3 with an E. Is how is this study designed?
2: Sure. So I'm going to walk us through the schema a little bit. So try to visualize this with me. So basically, we're going to talk about the key eligibility criteria at first. So we have treatment-naive patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer that included patients with both non-squamous and squamous histology, stage 3 BC, as well as 4. These patients had to have radiologically measurable disease, per paresist version 1.1. Any pdl one expression was included. They had to be without the presence of any driver alteration, EGFR, ALP, or ROS1, a fairly good performance status, ECOG0 or 1, adequate organ function as well, and CNS metastases were permitted if they were adequately treated and considered clinically stable. These characteristics and uh, patients were then stratified by pdl one expression, less than 1%. 1 to 49% or greater than 50%, as well as stratified by histology non-squamous versus squamous, And then all of these patients were randomized into one of two arms in a two-to-one fashion, and a total of 466 patients were included. Arm 1 or arm A included simiplumab, which was given at 355 milligrams every three weeks, and then investigators choice of platinum doublet based on your histology. So that was either platinum pemetrexid if you were non-squamous or platinum paclitaxel if you were squamous. And this regimen was continued these three drugs every three weeks for four cycles, followed by, um, and then these patients were followed until progression of disease or unacceptable toxicity or up to 108 weeks. Arm B included chemotherapy, platinum doublet which included platinum pematrexid for the non-squame and platinum taxol for the squamous population, plus placebo every three weeks for four cycles, and then these patients were followed until progression of disease, unacceptable toxicity, or up to 108 weeks. The key endpoints of this study were overall survival as the primary endpoint, and key secondary endpoints were progression-free survival and overall response rate. Additional secondary were duration of response, safety, and uh, PROs as well.
0: A uh, pretty straightforward design, a nice randomized structure. Jordi, can you give us an overview of the results of Empower Lung Three?
1: Uh, yes. This is a positive trial because achieved the primary point and the combination of chemo IO strategy reduced 29% the risk of death with a median overall survival with the chemo IO strategy of 22 months compared with 13 months for those patients who receive uh, chemotherapy. And the one year overall survival was 66% from the chemo IO arm compared with 56% for those patients initially randomized to the chemotherapy. Also, it's a positive trial for the secondary endpoints because also reduce uh, 40% uh, the risk of progressive disease uh, with a median progression free survival of 8.2 months compared with five months in those patients who receive uh, chemotherapy. And also the combination of strategy with immunotherapy increased the percentage of tumors that might achieve a response, right? With a response rate of 43% compared with uh, 23%. And also the treatment duration of uh, the the, the duration of the responses were longer with the chemo IO strategy, uh, 15.6 months compared with 7.3 months for those patients initially randomized to uh, chemotherapy.
0: Jordy, any differences among the, the key subgroups like histology or PDL1 strata?
1: Yes. Uh that, that it's important to say that the study was not completely powered to examine the efficacy within predefined subgroups but it's true that it seems that this combination of strategy with semiplimab plus chemotherapy had a higher activity in patients with a squamous histology in overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.56 compared with a hazard ratio of 0.79 for those patients with a non-squamous histology. But also, it's important to mention that it seems that women in this trial do not obtain benefit of this strategy, of the chemotherapy strategy, despite that it's a very limited number of a very a small group of patients. And also, uh, those patients with the PTL1 negative tumors do not obtain benefit of this chemo-IO strategy. And again, similar to other trials, but testing just immunotherapy, it seems that patients who never smoked do not obtain benefit of these strategies of the chemo the combination of chemotherapy plus uh, semi for instance we couldn't say that it's a positive trial but it's true that it's these three groups, so groups women pt one negative tumors and never smokers that seems that do not obtain the maximum benefit of this strategy
0: and yeah, i saw those subgroups were were interesting it was also interesting how, how small they were the never smokers the female group uh, was a real small proportion and that's a little different from some of the other studies, but I think it's partly because this trial combined both the squamous and non-squamous histologies, right?
1: Yes, I, I think that this is one of the unique trials that combined both histologies. And also, uh, it's important to say that this trial uh, was performed in the Western Europe, that also some clinical patient's clinical characteristics might also influence in, in the results. It's true that uh, the number of current and former smokers in this trial, it's similar to other trials, but it's I think that as you mentioned, that the proportion of a squamous histology might reduce the potential benefit of this strategy in a specific subgroup of patients.
2: Hmm.
0: Some interesting trends there. Uh, let's talk about safety. Is How is this regimen tolerated?
2: So I would say overall, the safety profile was not anything that I did not expect. Unfortunately, there were higher grade four toxicity in the chemo IO arm compared to the chemotherapy placebo arm. But I think that would be expected. You have more drugs. Unfortunately, more drugs oftentimes equals more toxicity. Uh, Most of the main side effects were cytopenias, most notably anemia. And uh, this was followed by alopecia, which I think was likely more so in the squamous arm with the taxol. As we know, carboplatin pemetrexed does not typically cause as much alope- alopecia, however, maybe just some hair thinning. Um, hyperglycemia was actually something that caught my eye when this data came out as, as more of a unique toxicity and I don't know if this was steroid-induced from the steroids that we give to support patients with chemotherapy, or if we think this was maybe more iotox from the simiplumab, um, maybe a combination of both. But I think that this is something that is more, more unique in regards to this study. Other than that, we did see some GI toxicity, in, including nausea in both in both arms. It did seem that Overall, the toxicity was a slightly more pronounced in the simiplomab chemo arm than the placebo chemo arm, but nothing else on here really caught my eye. And I don't think there was anything on here that was too terribly unexpected.
0: Yeah, so certainly more agents, more talks, but nothing too surprising. I, I agree. Is Do you think this would be a regimen for patients whose tumors have a driver mutation?
2: So I think, Stephen, you're asking the million-dollar question here, Um we are always trying to find a home for our patients with, uh, who harbor driver alterations. And based on the data that Jordi so beautifully presented, I, I don't think that this would be a first choice for me. I think as we know our patients that harbor driver alterations do not really enjoy a benefit from immunotherapy Um, And that would be egfr ALK, and and ROS1 that were excluded from this study. I think oftentimes driver alterations, the the KRAS population can be lumped into that, but I don't think that that is necessarily appropriate in this setting. We know patients with KRAS alterations, it it is a completely different beast and and should not be included. So I would say those that harbor an egfr ALK, or ROS1 that were appropriately excluded from this study, I can't say that I would offer this regimen to those patients.
0: Uh, I completely agree is I know one of your passions really is biomarker testing. And I don't think we could say it enough that, you know, we have lots of regimens now another chemo immunotherapy regimen, but um, this doesn't allow us to skip that biomarker testing piece, right?
2: That is exactly true. I think biomarker testing, especially in the advanced setting is essential and um, making sure that you're not offering your patient, you know, the wrong treatment that would preclude them to more side effects that were unnecessary and then maybe even a worse overall outcome.
0: Right. So this, you know, um, while this is a regimen across PD-L1 strata, uh, this is not appropriate for those with a, a driver alteration that we can act on. And so we really need that testing up front. And I think that's really an important message. I know that uh, that's very important for, for the work that you're doing is um, this regimen was approved. By the US FDA, November eighth, twenty twenty two. I don't think this is available in the EU yet. Is that correct, Jordi?
1: For instance, it has not been approved by the EMA, and uh, this regimen it's not. A, it's only semiplimab alone in high pivotal one expressors, but not in combination with chemotherapy. It doesn't have the EMA approval
0: yet. And you know, how long does it usually take? Uh, what's the time difference usually between FDA approval and uh, EMA approval? Uh, Usually, uh,
1: the EMA has more time for approval, most of the drugs. I think that FDA is faster. uh, But uh not always faster is always better uh sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah <I'm> sorry that <laughs> i think that it's important also to be aware of all the specific subgroups it's true that in some cases also there are some discrepancies in the approval by the FDA or the EMA in metastatic disease for example we know that the FDA approved the combination of semiplima plus ipilimumab in PD1 positive tumors but in contrast it has not been approved by the EMA and also for example in the adjuvant setting atezolizumab by the FDA has been approved in PD1 positive tumors But in contrast, the EMA based on the subgroup analysis just approved this treatment in a high PdL1 expressor. So I think that uh, sometimes is longer and sometimes may exist some kind of discrepancies. And it makes that perhaps not all the treatments that are available in the United States obviously are always available uh, in uh, Europe. And there might be some differences in the first treatment approach for the same patient, either is it treated in the United States or in the in Europe.
0: Yeah, there seems to be a little more acceptance of subgroup analysis. I think by EMA and you know, atezolizumab is an important example. dervalimab also yes, um, an important example in the um, post chemo radiation space. So important to pay attention to details and acknowledge there are regional differences in access. Uh, and EMA approval doesn't necessarily mean reimbursement. Is that right?
1: Yes, when you have the reimbursement by the EMA, then each country should evaluate if it's acceptable or not, uh, if it's affordable, uh, if th- th- it can be paid. So despite that the EMA could approve some specific uh, drug uh then each country individually should make the evaluation of the drug and uh, approved by each country. And there is a real discrepancies between different countries uh, since the time that the drug is approved by the EMA and it's approved for each country specifically. For example, in a, before I was working in Spain and we have a more or less a delayed of 500 days since that EMA approved a drug And this drug could be available, for example, in Spain.
0: Jordi, any other details about the study that you think are important to note?
1: I I think that it's important to mention that the trial was stopped early uh, per recommendation by the Independent Data Monitoring uh, Committee based on the benefit in the overall survival. And it's true that it's a positive trial, but I think that when we evaluate the benefit in overall survival, also we should be aware whether the control arm receives all the potential treatment strategies that are available. And it's important to know the percentage of patients in the control arm that really perceive an immunotherapy at the time of progression. And for instance, if I, if I am not wrong, this is not reported in this trial in comparison with other trials that have assessed the role of kemoiva versus chemotherapy in the first line setting where at least half of these patients in the control arm at the time of progressive disease uh, had received an immunotherapy and they think that this data is that a really important to uh, endorse the robustness of the results in the overall survival for this empower lung
0: 03 trial. Yeah, that's that's an important point we want to pay attention to crossover and you know we also want to just watch long term outcomes. We've been blessed to have you know, long-term data for a lot of the existing studies. It's important to make sure that that benefit persists over time. For the time being, this regimen is approved in the U.S. It was a positive trial and met its survival endpoint. The addition of simiplimab improving overall survival is where will this regimen be used? You know, is this any different from the available options we already have?
2: So I think we we are fortunate enough to have many fish in the sea. As of right now, we have five IO drugs approved in this space. I think I don't really know exactly who's going to be the right patient population for this as of yet. I think, you know, each each approval in this space is trying to find some unique characteristic about it. Like I know in the Poseidon work, we've, we've found that, you know, maybe there's a signal in patients with PDL one low, maybe there's a signal in the KRAS-SDK11-KEEP1 commutation patients, um, so I think I don't yet know what the exact signal is for for Empower Three at this time. I think it's yet another option, but um, I'm not sure I would jump to this just yet because I'm not sure I'm not sure who exactly will benefit and, and how I would choose this over you know key, Keynote One Eight Nine.
0: I, I kind of agree with you. Is I think that there's a little bit of inertia in the regimens we choose. Um, now one would think that with more regimens out there, we would hopefully see a competitive marketplace, a decrease in price. That hasn't really panned out yet. We haven't really seen major differences in price point yet, at least not significant in my opinion. Um, but let me put it this way is if uh, for example, if insurance had said, well, you, you ordered this other regimen, this chemo IO, but you know, our formulary, we we would prefer that you use the M Power Lung 3 regimen, would you be comfortable using this regimen?
2: So, I mean, I, I think the data is there. I think, you know, these are drugs that we have used before, maybe not some but um, I think, you know, something is, is better than nothing. And we do know about the benefits of anti-PD-1 therapy in these patients that have, you know, unfortunately, aggressive disease, and we need to do something. So I can't say that I would shy away from it, but I, I don't think I'm comfortable knowing where it falls as of right now.
0: Dordie, in your mind anything that sets this regimen apart from others? And the only it was if the
1: price was lower because it's true that the results uh, are more or less a me too compared with other uh, strategies and uh, perhaps some concerns about the PDL1 negative tumors that I wouldn't be really comfortable to use in a PD-1 negative tumors. But I think that in general, it should be considered another me-too strategy uh, in comparison with uh, what other potential KMOIO strategies. I think that it's really important, for example, uh, to define a better, more, uh, the strategy in PD-1 negative tumors, because probably the chemo IO alone uh, with just a, one drug of immunotherapy, it's not strong enough to really treat these patients. And I think that it's the subgroup that we should put more attention in that moment.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I'm pretty comfortable with the results, mostly because they're they're very consistent with the other regimens we've seen. Um, we're, we're seeing very similar trends uh, similar degrees of benefit. But what we're hearing a lot from our colleagues is the control arm here, um, which is chemotherapy alone, has not been our standard of care for a while. Um, we see that a lot in clinical research, in immunotherapy studies and targeted agent studies. Is Can you think of a, a good reason? Can you explain that to our listeners?
2: Sure. I think this is definitely something that we scrutinize about. And unfortunately, such is the issue with science that things you know, drugs are getting approved, and we are moving this space so quickly, um, we're not able to catch up. So as as you know, these studies often start, you know, before other approvals happen, and I'm going to go through a couple examples. So by the time the studies open, you know, dating back four or five, maybe even some over six years ago, the comparator arm at that time, which was considered quite relevant, Fast forward five, six, seven years is no longer relevant. So I think we can't quite catch up, but I'll go through some some references so we kind of know what I'm talking about. So for our first example, for our um, Keynote 21 Cohort G, which is a chemo-Pembro combo, this, as we know, received accelerated approval in May 2017 based on, based on response rate. And it received full approval in August 2018 after Keynote 189 read out. So, if you're looking at Empower Lung Three study that was activated back in 2016, this was designed well before that. So, chemotherapy alone, as I had mentioned, was still considered standard of care at that time. So, then if you look at Keynote 189 and Keynote 4807, that resulted, the U.S. and the Western European sites actually dropped out, and participation largely reflects areas of the world where chemo IO was not available. So, these studies are are opening up far before you know, we're able to catch up because we're we're just lagging behind. And, and I think in part that can be frustrating, but you also don't want to rush a study to get results out. But would it be nice to have chemo IO compared to chemo IO? Absolutely. Is that going to happen? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I agree. Probably uh, unlikely, uh, you know, looking at different agents, but I think you make a good point. These these studies take time to enroll, and even when a study is approved in the U.S., unfortunately, we know there are significant disparities in access to those regimens in other parts of the world. Um, as, as Jordy was alluding to, I think this probably accounts for some of the differences in, in the breakdown, of the demographics, just sort of the regional details of where this study enrolled. Now, Jordy, let me sort of ask you kind of a blunt question: Is this is it helpful to have more options like this? Do you feel like there are any meaningful differences between these various PD-1 and pd one inhibitors?
1: I think that today we have a lot of evidence that uh, the chemo IO strategy work. As you mentioned before, probably we do not need, we do not need more uh, MITO trials. And perhaps as an academic point of view or a clinical point of view, as I also least said, uh, it's more important to try to define the subgroup of patients that should be treated with a specific uh, combinations of strategies. I think that uh, today, uh, when we combine anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-1 with chemotherapy, I think the results are really, really similar. Uh, and probably as a clinician, for me, it will be more important uh, to take into account if there is any niche of patients either with a specific uh Uh, mutations or commutations that may obtain benefit of specific strategies and also other clinical questions, for example, the treatment duration, it's really important uh, for patients and also for the uh, financial toxicity. Today, I think that we have arrived at, at the limit of the evidence of all of this data. I think that it's really difficult to really improve more that, but I think that if you really want to improve, we should select better the patients and answer more relevant clinical question. Now we have the evidence, then we should move to how to apply this evidence in a specific subgroups that might impact in patients also quality of life.
0: Yeah, well said. Let's talk about the, the strategy in general, um, is chemo immunotherapy combinations. When do you use those instead of immunotherapy alone or instead of dual checkpoint blockade?
2: Such a good question, Stephen. I think this is really becoming much more nuanced than it had been, you know, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. So, for, for a patient that has, you know, no PDL1 expression, low TMB, um, but there's no presence of a known driver alteration that's actionable, I would err on the chemo IO combinations for these patients with, with obviously a very low threshold to stop the IO portion in the maintenance setting, um, if there were any unacceptable toxicities, of course. For the IO alone or dual checkpoint blockade, pd one pdl one CTLA-4 combinations, I really look for patients that have, you know, a, a higher pdl one expression, meaning maybe 50% or greater, a heavy smoking history, maybe an elevated TMB, those features that make us think that this tumor is very agitated, or very mutagenic, you could say, for lack of a better word, because we know that immunotherapy is often has a hunger for those those kind of tumors. So so that's typically what I look at. Um, for For single agent IO alone, this may be somebody that has maybe some of those high uh, PDL1 TMB heavy smoking history features. Maybe someone that I'm concerned may not be fit enough for for chemo IO or maybe someone that has a very low disease volume, and um, or maybe something that fits their quality of life, which is the most important thing, you look at somebody, you have to tell them, you know, no matter what, you're most likely going to be coming here once every three weeks, uh, depending on your underlying histology. And and is that something that's going to fit your lifestyle, right? i I always tell my patients in the advanced stage setting, this is we're going for a marathon, we're not going for a sprint. So I want something that's going to fit your lifestyle. This is, you know, I'm going to become part of your life, but I should not become your life. Mm. And if I ever do, you need to tell me. Oh, so nice. you need to think about everything.
0: That's really well said. Really well said is. Jordi, in Gustave Roussi in, in Europe right now, I know you did a, a beautiful review in JCO earlier this year uh, about the, the current landscape. Where does chemo immunotherapy fit into your standard treatment algorithm, you know, off study?
1: Yes, the the chemo uh, IO strategy is used for patients with a PDL1 less than fifty percent as a strategy, and also in PDL1 negative tumors, I try to to use the combination of uh, nivolumab ipilimumab plus chemotherapy, the CheckMate nine LA trial. For so those patients with a PDL 1 more than 50% that really have a high tumor more than more than three metastatic uh, uh, lesions, uh, sites lesion, three metastatic sites, sorry, uh, or patients with a high PDL1 uh, expression, women never smokers in that case, and also use the chemo-IO strategy. I think that today it's true that uh, the one clinical question is what to do for patients uh, whose tumors cover high PD-1 expression, immunotherapy alone or chemoio And I think that only the patients with a high tumor burden might obtain benefit of this uh, combination of strategy uh, in in comparison with the, the monotherapy. But it's still on debate. There is the uh, French trial that it's trying to compare this chemoio versus il in these PD-1 high tumors. Uh, and I think that uh, there is not an answer to that. But in my daily clinical practice, I use these clinical factors for choosing uh, this combination in this subgroup of patients.
0: Uh, so there is a, a bit of art, a bit of nuance to, to a lot of judgment exercised. We also in the U.S. have a study, the Insignia trial, which mm-hmm. is for pd one positive, but we'll uh, also look at the subgroup PD-L1 high. And you know, hopefully we will have answers, but it's going to take a little bit of time. When we look at those strategies, Jordy, you know, if you think of non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, getting a chemo IO strategy like Empower Lung 3, how important is that maintenance pemetrexid? Do you always continue that indefinitely?
1: I think that we have more and more clinical evidence, not clinical trial evidence, clinical evidence that it's really difficult to continue the dual maintenance treatment for the patients. And in some cases, I see more renal toxicity linked to the pemetric set than linked to the immunotherapy. So. If after three or four cycles of um, maintenance with Pemetric set, there are some complaints, some side effects uh, or any to kind of toxicity, I tend to stop the pemetrexed set in this strategy, of maintenance strategy. So I think that we feel confidence that probably it's not necessary to keep both agents. And also, for example, in the keynote 809, uh, 19, uh eight 889, sorry, uh, not all the patients receive all the maintenance treatment, and, and more or less, they receive between three, four cycles of maintenance with set. So I think that if there is any kind of toxicity, we could be confident to uh, stop the maintenance with set.
0: Yeah, that's. I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I also feel that, you know, for some patients, it is hard to continue that pemetrexed long-term, just the renal tox, the um, red cell suppression and the anemia, um, and so I, you really do have to to individualize that. So I'm glad that our experiences are the same. Uh, wh- what about the the other half of the maintenance? Uh, is the maintenance semiplomab or pembrolizumab or tezolizumab, depending on what regimen you're using? How long do you continue the immunotherapy maintenance? Are you are you sticking in that two years? Is
2: so this is this is also another outstanding question, and I think at this time we don't really know. Uh, we don't know the benefit. Uh, we don't know when to exactly stop. We don't know the answer. Um, this is really a discussion to be had with a patient. There are some patients that are excited to stop. And, you know, if I am gonna stop a patient on immunotherapy at that two year mark, I often, um, I often see if I could get, you know, uh, a liquid biopsy to see what's going on with their CT DNA, um, if I'm able to get approval for it just out of curiosity. And sometimes I get a PET scan just to make sure there's no overt avid disease that wasn't, you know, showing up on their CTs that we were getting at the intervals that are recommended. But then you also have the other patients that are terrified, you know, this, this treatment saved them, this treatment has been keeping them alive, they're tolerating it. They now know that they come every three weeks or every six weeks or every four, depending on what IO regimen they're on. And it's become part of their life. And they, you know, they're okay with it, you know, if it ain't broke, why fix it? <laughs> so I think, you know, it's it's a discussion to be had, I don't know the right answer. And then, you know, you're always wondering, when's the other shoe going to drop, you know, you know, when is this going to come back? And if it comes back, is IO going to work again? Am I going to have to be rechallenged with chemo IO again, when IO alone was just working? So I don't know, but then there's also the toxicity, right? You know, is is more more? I don't, I don't know. I think this is a great question. I'm very curious to hear what both of you think about it.
0: Jordi, what's what's your stance on the maintenance immunotherapy portion? I think, as uh, it's
1: said, it's a, uh, a hot clinical question. But I think, for example, I completely agree uh, with uh, her answer. But this year, ESMO was presented a, a very interesting French clinical trial that uh, despite it was uh, prematurely closed, they randomized the patients with a nivolumab and epilumab to continue, uh, according to the response after six months of treatment, to uh, stop the treatment or continue the treatment for Uh, two years. It's true that only 70 patients were included in this trial. It's really uh, just a proof of concept. But it was reported that stop the treatment at six months. It's at least not deleterious comparing with all, uh, the, the, with all the, with two years of treatment with nivolumab and ipilimumab. The trial was stopped because I mentioned before, because nivolumab and ipilimumab was not approved by the EMA. But the, the French group now has initiated another clinical trial that it's the combination of chemotherapy and, uh, immunotherapy. And for those patients who are a stable or has a response at six months are randomized to stop the treatment or continue the treatment uh, for, uh, up to two years. Uh, and I think that the results will help us to more or less to decide if we sh- it's really necessary to stop the treatment, uh, uh, to continue the treatment up to two years or we can stop earlier. I think personally that it's not completely proven that longer treatment duration really have a better outcome. And when we see the patients that complete two years of treatment, it's true that they have a five years overall survival of 70%, but all of these patients had a response rate under the treatment, so. The benefit or the long-term benefit is related because these patients are treatment for a longer time of period or because these patients really achieve a response rate under the treatment. And I think that this is the key. If you have a response rate on the treatment, probably it's not necessary to continue the treatment up to two years. But this is something that probably this French trial will help us to have some kind of, of, of answer.
0: Yeah, it's it's a question we encounter in the clinics all the time, and the data we have to draw from is pretty limited. You know, the CheckMate one five three showed indefinite use of nivolumab in the second line setting uh, was was superior to fixed use at, at one year uh, for people that didn't progress. But um, you know, that that's not the situation we find ourselves in now. And I, I personally think that uh, it's not going to be empirically the same for everyone. I think that there are some people that probably don't need as much, and some that might need continuous. And hopefully we'll come to a point where, you know, where we can identify who those people are. But what we need here are really biomarkers that give us a little more comfort with stopping early. Um, it's an important space. I think that French trial will be very, very important to read. You know, uh, we're, we're coming close to time, but before we go, I wonder if I could just sneak in a slightly different topic and maybe hear a little bit about your own career paths uh, to, to lung cancer. Jordi, you're at Gustave Russi. Can you tell us just a little bit about your background? Oh yes, of course. Um, yes, I, I made
1: my career and my uh, medical oncology interna in Barcelona. Then I start to work in a small uh, hospital near to Barcelona because I really want to improve my knowledge in all the uh, cancer. And I start with breast cancer, then uh, colorectal cancer. And finally, I arrived to the thoracic malignancies that I am really happy. Uh, then I moved to St. Russi for two years. I really wanted to improve my knowledge in genomic profile, in all the clinical trials. And it was an amazing uh, first approach here in gustave Then I move again to Barcelona and now I have started since 15 days ago again my position here in Gustavo russi I think that for perhaps younger uh, colleagues uh, that I think it's really important to define your career. Probably your career is not uh, the first job. Uh, you must define what do you want, how kind of uh, Onco- medical oncologist you want to be perhaps it's really important that you want to be focalized in the clinic but sometimes you want to also be enrolled in clinical trials all the options are correct but it's really important that you be confident with yourself and this is m- my advice and if you don't feel confident you are not happy in your place try to move and to try to find your way in your career
0: beautiful advice I, I love that um is we we met through the work that you do with lCRF. can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and how you chose to focus on thoracic oncology?
2: Sure, my story is by no means as interesting as Geordie's um, but I will go ahead so i um I did my medical training in Pennsylvania and then residency and fellowship was in new york i um, I had been very closely working with the memorial group throughout all of my training. And um, I feel very fortunate to be here now. I knew starting back in residency, uh, Ben Levy was actually my one of my mentors. And um, he obviously gave me the lung cancer bug. And ever since then, this was like right at the height of when we had first discovered EGFR mutations and how that relates to lung cancer and or had just come out on the market. And it was so exciting. And I was just fascinated about personalizing medicine and how, you know, it was not one size fits all like some of the other diseases had been at that time outside of breast cancer. So I took a liking to it. I, I really got involved and invested in personalized medicine, tailoring to your tumor, targeted therapy, predictive biomarkers, and really understanding how you can cultivate a uh, you know a personalized plan for somebody in lung cancer. And as we have more discoveries, this is becoming more and more evident. And, and this aspect really drives my interest in this space. In regards to my involvement with LCRF, I have A strong passion for ethics and for patient education and making sure that our patients feel like they're really part of the team and an integral part nonetheless. So I feel like my work there allows me to really connect with the patient population broadly and learn from them. It is the most, it has really been the most humbling experience. And I hope to continue this, my work with them for a very long time.
0: Well, I, I'm certainly glad that both of you found your, your way to the lung cancer world and the, our community, and we're, we're better for it. I'd, I'd love to keep talking with both of you, but we are out of time. And so I want to thank our guests, both Rising Stars and Thoracic Oncology, for joining us today, for all their insights and for all the work they've done. Uh, Dr. Isabel Prichigol, thank you for taking the time to be with us.
2: Thank you for having me. And also, Jordi, I, I want to say thank you for sharing your your aspects of cancer care in Europe. I think we can be rather siloed in the U.S. and cancer is a global global disease and it's so important to be aware of what goes on outside of your silo. So thanks for educating me today.
0: Yeah, echo that, Jordi. Uh, you know, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank
1: you very much and I have learned a lot of, uh, from both of you so I'm really happy to be involved in this activity and thanks again.
0: And thanks to everyone there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.